Welcome back to Parashat Achrimot. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman, and we are talking about sacrifices. Actually, the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, concerns itself with the Yom Kippur sacrifice, and so it is there that we are going to focus our attention. We're now going to begin a section entitled Apologetics. This will be part one of that section. If you're following along with the written notes, um, look on the top of page four. Let's start there, okay? Apologetics, part one. Let's turn now to a discussion of the expiatory offerings and their bearing on Jews and Christians today. To be sure, this will be a central topic of my commentary today. For the sake of this next apologetic section, I'd like to create two imaginary groups. One of the groups will be the missionary, and the other group will be the anti-missionary. Um, now, the missionaries are, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the terms and the way I'm using them, missionaries are uh, those who take the gospel to those who don't have the gospel. Now, in truth, every religion has their missionaries. But for the sake of my exercise here, the missionaries are the um, enemies of the um, the missionary. The missionaries are the enemies of the anti-missionaries. Now, um, I'm using terms that actually truly exist today. The missionaries are those who are described by um, some Jewish. Uh, sex or Jewish um, authorities as Christians who want to turn Jews into Christians. Are you understanding my illusion there? A missionary is someone who's seen as a threat. Someone who's going to turn um, a Jew into a Christian is obviously going to take that Jew away from Judaism. They're going to lose the Jew to Judaism in the, in the eyes of the Jewish people. And so a missionary is seen as a bad thing. The anti-missionary are, of course, those people that I'm describing, the people who would rather see the Jewish people remain Jewish and not turn to Christianity. So, missionary and anti-missionary. Again, in reality, both of these groups really exist, but my commentary will of necessity be structuring their respective arguments for my readers today. Now, I'd like to start by citing some somewhat standard answers to a few Christian objections um, here presented as the missionaries. In other words, the Christians are the missionaries, and the answers will concern themselves with the sacrifices and atonement. A sample missionary question will appear first with a standard Jewish answer here read as the anti-missionaries following. In, others, in other words, the standard Christian position will be the missionary, and the standard Jewish position will be the anti-missionary. In reality, I'm not trying to say that um, Christians are good and Jews are bad, or Christians are bad and Jews are good. I'm not trying to say either one of those things. But, in the, um, in the world in which we live in today, uh, the term anti-missionary is utilized by those Jewish groups who are seeking to prevent Christians from turning their own people into Christians. Okay, I know the terms can get confusing. Uh, later in the commentary, I'm going to take my own shot at refuting the standard anti-missionary answers. But let's first list two questions from the missionaries, from the Christians, and allow the anti-missionaries, the standard Jewish people, to answer. Again, this is just a an exercise in um, in scriptural study. It's not designed to cause you to think that the Christians are bad and the Jews are good, or that the Jews are... Uh, uh, bad and the Christians are good or either one of those two things, okay? Let's just move forward with the exercise. First question, again, this would be like picture this setting, okay? A Christian and a Jew having a dialogue. And the question is uh, from the Christian and the answer is from the Jew. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Question. How do Jews obtain forgiveness without sacrifices? Answer. 
Forgiveness is obtained through repentance, prayer, and good deeds. In Jewish practice, prayer has taken the place of sacrifices. In accordance with the words of Hosea, we, we render instead of bullocks the offering of our lips. The reference is to Hosea 14.3. Please note that the KJV translates this somewhat differently. While dedicating the temple, King Solomon also indicated that prayer can be used to obtain forgiveness. Look at 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46-50. through 50. Our prayer services are in many ways designed to parallel the sacrificial practices. For example, we have an extra service on Shabbat to parallel the extra Shabbat offering. For more information about this, see Jewish liturgy. That is to say, see a, uh, a Siddur, a prayer book. It is important to note that in Judaism, sacrifice was never the exclusive means of, of obtaining forgiveness. Uh, was not in and of itself sufficient to obtain forgiveness, and in certain circumstances was not even effective to obtain forgiveness. This will be discussed farther below. Alright, that's our first round of question and answers. Let's keep going. Second question from a standard missionary, a.k.a. a Christian, and now our second answer from a standard anti-missionary, a.k.a. your average Jewish person. Question, but isn't a blood sacrifice required in order to obtain forgiveness? Answer, no. Although animal sacrifice is one means of obtaining forgiveness, there are non-animal offerings as well, and there are other means for obtaining forgiveness that do not involve, that do not involve sacrifices at all. The passage that people ordinarily cite for the notion that blood is required is Leviticus 17.11, which reads, quote, For the soul of the flesh is in the blood, and I have assigned it for you upon the altar to provide atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that atones for the soul. End quote. But the passage that this verse comes from is not about atonement. It is about dietary laws, and the passage says only that blood is, to, that blood is used to obtain atonement, not that blood is the only means for obtaining atonement. Leviticus 17.10-12 through 12 could be paraphrased, paraphrased as, quote, Don't eat blood because blood is used in atonement rituals, therefore don't eat blood. End quote. Now I would, okay, now and let me just stop there. That's the end of the anti-missionary answer. Now with that as our, um, as, as our kicker to get us going in this direction of the argument, the reason I provided those two sample questions and those two sample answers from the missionaries and the anti-missionaries is for you, the reader, to understand, or you, the listener, to understand the huge differences and conflicts that appear or that, uh, um, that, that exist within the two camps. Remember how earlier in Part A that I talked about the proverbial fork in the road? Well, Judaism has gone one way and Christianity has gone the other way. And we both use the same passages to support our views. So it becomes confusing for the third party, the um, onlooker, to try and figure out which view is correct. That's why we're doing this um, apologetic section in the first place, is for people who are perhaps in the middle road and they're trying to figure out which fork do I embark upon. Uh, now, I'd like to supply some messianic answers to these issues posed by my imaginary missionary and as an anti-missionary opponent. Now, what I mean by me messianic this time is a Jewish person and or a Christian who also embraces a Judaic lifestyle, a Hebraic lifestyle. That's what I mean by the term messianic there such as the Messianic movement or Messianic Judaism. Messianic there refers to someone who is not completely um, indifferent to the, to the Jewish views and Jewish sensitivities. And this would automatically discount your average missionary Christian because much of Christianity today 
does not embrace a Hebraic lifestyle. Thus, um, in order to approach the anti-missionary, the Jewish people, with a, um, a desire to remain Jewish, the Messianic seems in many ways better uh, positioned or better equipped to address those issues because he, like his anti-Jewish, I'm sorry, like his anti-missionary counterpart, all already embraces the Hebraic lifestyle. And so much of the resistance from the anti-missionaries stems from their perceived view of Christians seeking to turn them into Christians, a position that we Messianics firmly disagree with. We don't want to turn Jewish people into Christians. We want to turn them into believers, that's true, believers in Christ, absolutely. But that doesn't turn them into Christians, as in giving up their Hebraic lifestyle, as in giving up their Torah obedience. Are you understanding the slight difference there? A Messianic person, as I'm describing them here in my commentary, is someone who seeks to embrace the Torah as his lifestyle, not seeking to jettison such a lifestyle once he comes to faith in Jesus. So that's a stark difference between the Messianic and the missionary. Although both the Messianic and the missionary both seek to bring Jesus to the anti-missionary. Okay? I hope I didn't confuse anyone. Let's go forward. Alright, this time the question that I'm going to ask could feasibly be posed by either a missionary or an anti-missionary. It doesn't matter. But the answers are definitely my missionary answer. Okay, missionary referring to um, faith in Yeshua. Alright, here's the question. Is there atonement without the sacrifices? And if there is atonement, is such atonement offered for both intentional and unintentional sins? Again, this could be like uh, now we've now we've got three people sitting around a, a table or whatever. We've got a, a missionary, which is a Christian, an anti-missionary, which is a Jew, and then we've got this messianic who could either be a messianic Jew or a messianic Gentile. It doesn't matter. The word messianic again just simply refers to his embracing of the Hebraic lifestyle. All right. The question could be from either the missionary or the anti-missionary, but now the messianic person is going to answer. All right. Here we go. First of all, in the answer. What are intentional and unintentional sins? Because that's how the question uh, was posed. That's how it was worded. Rennie S. Altman of the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, the UAHC, says this about such sins. All right, I'm going to pull a quote from, um, from an online article at the UAHC. Quote, In Leviticus 4, we read about the chata'at, the sin offering, that the Israelites were required to bring when they had, trans- when they had transgressed a known commandment, as well as when they had committed an, an unintentional sin, either because of their ignorance of the commandments or through carelessness or oversight. In the latter instance, um, everyone in the Israelite community was obligated to bring an offering, even the high priest. In contrast to many of us today, our ancestors understood that they were responsible for all their actions, whether intentional or not. In his commentary on Levine, Baruch Levine explains that according to ancient cultic belief systems, guilt exists regardless of the perpetrator's awareness of having committed a sin. Guilt, as it were, has a life of its own, and only an act of expiation can wipe it away. Thus, we learn in Sefer HaChinuk, a 13th century work that discusses the commandment and their purposes, quote, When a man sins, he cannot cleanse his heart merely by uttering between himself and the wall, quote, I have sinned and I will never repeat it, end quote, or by doing an overt act to atone for his sin by taking rams from his enclosures and troubling himself to bring them to the temple, give them to the priest, and perform the entire rite as prescribed for sin offerings. 
Only then will he impress upon his soul the extent of the evil of his sin and take measures to avoid it in the future. End quote. Now, based on that first answer, I think it's safe to say that both missionaries and anti-missionaries would agree that atonement is made available for sin in general, all right, but would simply and sharply disagree on the methods of procuring such atonement. In other words, I quoted um, the, uh, Rennie Altman because we see that he is using the Torah text as his support for um, procuring atonement between a man and his fellow man, or between a man and his God. So, um, again, um, it seems to be that the anti-missionary would, would seemingly say, well, all we need to do is just uh, say a prayer and um, make some side of, sort of restitution. But according to the Torah, an animal must be involved. So what's it, what exactly is the big issue at stake here um, when we're talking about the differences of opinions? Again, your standard missionaries do not espouse to animal sacrifices. Interestingly enough, your standard anti-missionaries seem to suggest that prayer replaces the animals. And yet me, the messianic, I'm, I'm the messianic person in the group, I seem to say that, well, there's a little bit of truth in one side and there's a little bit of truth in the other side. Um, what, did, what exactly is the big issue here? Well, perhaps at least there's two issues that need to be addressed. Exactly which sins are atoned for, intentional or unintentional, and by what method are they atoned, Okay. That seems to be the question that I'm going to go off into in that direction because, again, the rabbis have engineered a teaching that seems to teach that unintentional sins are not, um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, intentional sins are not atoned for, but yet unintentional sins are. Um, and Christianity seems to follow suit in some cases. Since our parasha centers on the Yom Kippur ritual, it's there that I'm going to first turn for support of my detailed answer on these issues, okay? I, Ariel, firmly believe that the Torah clearly teaches that the Yom Kippur ritual was intended for both intentional and unintentional sins, alright? I believe that the once-a-year once sacrifice covered all of those things. Now, before I show my answer, let me show you another anti-missionary answer, alright? Let's turn to the anti-missionaries one more time so that we can launch from their position into our own answer, all right? Some anti-missionaries would readily disagree with my above statement about Yom Kippur, all right? I, I mentioned this earlier. The Jewish position is that there is no atonement for intentional sins. The rabbis today more or less argue that if a Jew willfully sins, then there's no atonement for that. He must do something to... Um, supposedly turn that intentional sin into an unintentional sin, and then in doing so he can find some type of atonement. A well-known anti-missionary organization by the name of Jews for Judaism agrees with the notion of atonement for intentional and unintentional sins, but the means of such atonement is radically different than the accepted missionary approach. All right, So let's look at Jews for Judaism for a moment. I pulled this information straight off the website. Look at the footnote to number 7, jewsforjudaism.org, um, and go to their frequently asked questions. All right, Here we go. This, by the way, is their approach to intentional and unintentional sins and what the remedy is for it. Observe their answer. Quote, Biblically, the optimum means for attaining atonement consists of both animal sacrifices and sincere confessionary repentant prayer used in conjunction with each other. Traditional Judaism looks forward to the restoration of the dual system working simultaneously, animal sacrifice and contrite prayer. 
The rabbis under the leadership of Yochanan ben Zachai did not make an unscriptural substitution when they emphasized sincere, confessionary, repentant prayer as a means of obtaining atonement. The Bible already mandated sincere, confessionary, repentant prayer as a proper vehicle for attaining forgiveness. In the biblical period, atonement prayer was used with, the, with full divine sanction, with or without animal offerings, even for non-Jews. And you can look up Jonah 3, verses 5-10 through 10 for the information they're supplying. Uh, Jews for Judaism goes on to say, quote, Sincere, confessionary, repentant prayer is the primary biblical prescription for obtaining atonement when an animal sacrifice cannot be offered concurrently. Animal sacrifices are only prescribed for unwitting or unintentional sin, shogig. Uh, is unintentional sin, shogeg. Leviticus 4, verse 2, verse 13, verse 22, verse 27, as well as Leviticus, Leviticus 5, 5, and Leviticus 5, 15. Um, and then you can compare that, or copy from Numbers 15, verse uh, 30, to see the information that they're uh, supplying. The one exception is if an individual swore falsely to acquit himself of the of the accusation of having committed theft. That's found in Leviticus 5:24 through 26. Intentional sin can only be atoned for through repentance unaccompanied by a blood sacrifice, and they reference Psalm 32 verse 5 as well as Psalm 51 verses 16 through 19. Uh, Jews for Judaism goes on to conclude, quote, giving charity is a material expression of this inner repentance that is articulated in the rabbinic formula, quote, prayer, repentance, and charity avert the evil decree, end quote. And the reference is to the um, a Talmudic passage at uh, Ta'anit uh, 2.1 as well as 65b. Um, actually, it's the Jerusalem Talmud is what they're referencing there. This is based on the verse, quote, If my people whom, I'm sorry, if my people upon whom my name is called shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. Of course, um, that's the well-known passage out of Second Chronicles 7.14, which many Christians, by the way, uh, use, especially during the National Day of Prayer. All right, end quote. So much for Jews for Judaism and their opinion there. Again, um, many missionaries, to include um, Messianics this time, have um, problems with the standard Judaic answer that prayer replaces the sacrifice. Because after all, the missionary answer and what the, you know the central feature of the missionary answer is that Jesus' atonement, the bloody sacrifice that he provided for us 2,000 years ago, is the answer to the dilemma facing the Jew today who has no more temple and no more animals. The messianic answer is identical to the Christian answer in the sense that Jesus is the answer to the difficulty um, created when there is no more animals to provide some sort of atoning device between us and our God. Are we without any sort of atonement? The missionary and the messianic would say no. We both have Yeshua as our atonement and this is where the um, difference of opinion would lie between the missionary and the anti-missionary. But let's continue um, our commentary here. I'm on the top of page 7. Now, after having read Jews for Judaism's answer, firstly, it must be recognized that Hashem's forgiveness, as enacted in the Korbanot, the sacrifices are reserved for those whose hearts are pure. This I agree with. I cannot throw out the baby with the bathwater and say that everything that Jews for Judaism said there was garbage. Far from it. They are actually... They're actually... Um, they're actually oriented in the right direction. Um, God, 
God did reserve forgiveness for those whose hearts were pure. That is, for those with the intention of turning from their sin and making restitution for sinning against God. Absolutely. To bring an animal outside of genuine heartfelt um, repentance was just what I call a waste of a good animal. So, the anti-missionaries correctly quoted Second Chronicles in my opinion, in an effort to demonstrate this. But again, I will disagree that the focus of such teshuva, such repentance, is the prayers, charity, and repentance alone. Those three. Prayers, charity, and repentance alone. As a, you know, done outside of a sacrifice. And again, we're going we're gonna to look at these three later on in my commentary. I maintain, as a messianic, that our focus can only be upon the spotless lamb offered for atonement, Yeshua ar Yom Kippur, okay? The renewed covenant, the apostolic scriptures are going to bear this out later as well. But first, before we go, I don't want to just give my answer right up front. I want to develop the theology behind my answer and find out how we arrived at my answer. The ancient rabbis agreed that sacrifice without true repentance invalidates the sacrifice itself. Okay? Me and the rabbis are in full agreement right there. What they, what I just quoted, uh, stated about the rabbis, that sacrifice without true repentance invalidates the sacrifice. I tend to think that the Christian position, the missionaries, should agree with that statement as well. However, I can't be certain because of the standard Christian missionary position on animal sacrifices to begin with. How they feel that it's it's totally uh, um, repugnant to them. It's, it's, it's repulsive, I should say. And so I don't know what to do with the standard Christianary position there as far as animal sacrifices. But suffice it to say, I agree with the rabbis here. I'm going to turn to the Talmud again to tractate Yoma to clearly see this. Now at this point in time, from the top of page 7 through the bulk of page 8, I'm going to quote from the Talmud. This is something I don't normally do. I usually just just provide little snippets here and there, but I want to give my readers and my listeners an inside peek into the Talmud, because I want you to see that the Talmud is not entirely bad. I've heard from many Christians that the Talmud is evil. It's man's opinions, and it's rabbinic, and it'll it'll pervert and twist your mind, and it'll it'll warp your, your, your thinking if you study it. You know, that's nonsense. The Talmud is a harmless resource used used in the right way. I don't agree with everything that the Talmud says, but I don't discount everything that the Talmud says either. Okay, The Talmud has some very good things to say. Now, that being said, let me just introduce you to the structure of the Talmud briefly. The Talmud is comprised of two main parts. We have the first part known as the Mishnah, which was traditionally the oral tradition that was handed down from, from um, teacher to teacher. Um, and in the Mishnah, we find typically an, a, a topic that's introduced with all its complications. And then a later commentary to the Mishnah was added, known as the Gemara. The Mishnah is the oral answer, or the oral topic. The Gemara is the commentary on the Mishnah. But the two brought together on one page form what was what is later known as the Talmud. Okay, So what you're going to see in my paper here is a heading that says Mishnah, and then you, you, I'll read some information, and then you'll see Gemara, okay? And they're they're designed to work kind of in um, in uh, tandem with one another. Okay, here we go. Mishnah. Sin offerings and trespass offerings atone. Death and the Day of Atonement, if one is penitent, atone. Penitent atones for slight breaches of positive or negative commandments for grave sins, it affects a suspension till the Day of Atonement completes the atonement. Now to him who says, quote, I will sin, repent, sin again, and repent again, end quote, is not given the opportunity to repent. 
Did you notice that phrase? It's very important. Notice the attitude of this individual, this this hypothetical person that the uh, the Mishnah is um, bringing. It says, this person says in his heart, I'm going to sin, I'll repent, I'll sin again, and then I'm going to repent again. And he thinks that the um, Yom Kippur sacrifice is going to take care of everything. The rabbis caution, no, no, no. For him who thinks I will sin, the Day of Atonement will atone for my sins. The Day of Atonement does not atone. And I need to just pause there and say that that is absolutely biblically accurate. For those of you who have uh, kind of reservations about the Talmud, thinking that these are just man's words, man's thoughts, and that there's no spiritual nutrition that I can gain from reading the Talmud, you need to think again. Because much of what the Talmud says is directly quoted from Scripture, and so the rabbis aren't completely out to lunch when they come up with these concepts. Let's keep reading the Mishnah. A sin towards God the Day of Atonement atones for, but a sin towards his fellow man is not atoned for by the Day of Atonement, so long as the wronged fellow man is not righted. End quote. Again, that principle is found squarely out of the written Torah, because many times, in fact, we're talking about a sin, um, The uh, we talked about this in the Asham uh, offering and or the Chata'ah offering, the, the, the guilt and the sin offering, respectively, that if the person bringing the sacrifice wishes to retain or uh, um, uh, enact in, in or, uh, I should say, walk into full remuneration, um, remittance for his sins, then he must, in fact, um, follow through with everything that the Torah instructs for him when it comes to gaining or procuring such atonement. I'm turning in my Torah now to the book of Leviticus, chapter 4. And let's see, is this the one I want? No. It's, uh, let's see, it is in chapter 5, actually, I apologize, uh, under the section that begins with the Asham, uh, verse 14, Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, if a person commits treachery and sins unintentionally again against Hashem's Holy of Holies, remember we talked about how these unintentional sins are um, shogeg sins, bishkaga. It goes down in verse 20. It says, Hashem spoke to Moses saying, If a person will sin and commit a treachery against Hashem by lying to his fellow regarding a pledge or a loan or a robbery or by defrauding his fellow, or if he found a lost item and, and denied it. Um, let's see. Here we go. In verse 24, after listing all, all these crimes that a person might be guilty of. And remember, this is under the Asham Korban, the, 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 um, the, 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 the offering uh, known as the guilt offering. In Pasuk 24, verse 24, it says, Or anything about which he had sworn falsely, notice the instruction. He shall repay its principal and add its fifth to it. So he has to pay back everything that he stole or everything that he, he, he wronged his neighbor for. And he has to add to that a tw- 20%, a fifth of what he stole. Um, and the Torah goes on to say, he'll repay it and add a fifth to it, and he shall give it to its owner on the day he admits his guilt. Did you notice that? Verse 24, chapter 5 of Leviticus, verse 24. This is exactly what the rabbis are teaching right here in this Mishnah. The Day of Atonement waits for the wronged fellow man to be righted before the full atonement is granted. So God's heavenly court recognizes the atonement only after the earthly court is also satisfied. And the earthly court will not be satisfied until restitution is made between fellows. Let's continue with our Mishnah. Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah lectured, 
it is written in Leviticus in a certain passage. Uh, the, the mission actually shows here uh, Leviticus 16 verse 30. Quote, from all your sins before the Lord shall ye be clean. End quote. And then he goes on to say that this is our own tradition. The sin towards God, the Day of Atonement, atones for. But sins towards man, the Day of Atonement, cannot atone for till the neighbor has been appeased. And again, that's based uh, out of the Leviticus passage that I just read. God set up the system of, of korbanot, of sacrifices, to both satisfy the heavenly court, as well as to provide a mechanism for... Uh, um, Writing the wrongs between our fellows, between um, you know, men, men, man versus man. God isn't the only one that gets wronged, is what we're uh, implying here, and therefore God isn't the only one who um, needs uh, restoration. Uh, you know, we we must work on our relationship between one another and restore that relationship as well. Let's continue in our Mishnah. Said Rabbi Akiva, "Happy are ye, O Israel, before whom do ye cleanse yourself, and who cleanses you?" Your father who is in heaven, for it is written in Ezekiel 36, verse 25, quote, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean, end quote. And it is also written, the mikvah, or the hope, or the legal bath, is what the word mikvah means. The mikvah, as he wrote it, M-I-G-V-E-A, V-E-H, the, 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 the legal bath of Israel is the Lord. As a legal dividing bath purifies the unclean, He's drawing a, uh, a comparison, Rabbi Kiva is. So does the Holy One, blessed be he, cleanse Israel. So, now that's our Mishnah. It's very short as usual. Mishnah doesn't usually have a lot to say there. But now let's go to the Gemara, which is going to be basically the question and answer section. So you're going to get a lot more questions. And we're going to go back into the information that the Mishnah provided for us in this Gemara. And we're going to start exegeting the Mishnah. We're going to start asking ourselves the questions. How did you rabbis come to these conclusions? How is it that the verses say this? What about this other verse? Is there another argument that we could present from a different point of view? Is there perhaps a machloket, a disagreement? Is there perhaps some um, ambiguity to the text? Things like that. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Gemara. Quote, death in the Day of Atonement, etc. Okay, they're going to start on this uh, uh, topic. Only when one is penitent, but otherwise they do not atone. Notice it's a question. Death in the Day of Atonement, only they, they only atone when one is penitent, but otherwise they don't atone? That's our first uh, sha'ila, our first question. The students, the Talmudim of this particular Gemara, start to ask. You know, and sometimes the students are, are, are other rabbis, but the students start asking, are you trying to tell me that the death and the day of atonement, they only atone when one is penitent, but otherwise they don't atone? They go on to ask, shall we assume, well, they go on to state, shall we assume that the Mishnah is not in accordance with rabbi, and that's with a capital R, in the following Boraita? Now, rabbi, just as FYI, he is the redactor of the of the Mishnah. He's the one who put together the Mishnah in 200 after the uh, destruction of the temple over in Yavne. His real name was Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, the prince, Rabbi Judah the prince. And um, he is kind of the, affectionately the father of the Talmud, or the father of the Mishnah. And so he simply shows up in the Mishnah of the Gemara under the name Rabbi, with a capital R. That's to distinguish from all the other rabbis who show up, you know, Rabbi Akiva, or Rabbi Eliezer, or Rabbi um, Ben Bagbag, and things like this. This is just Rabbi. Anyway, in the following Boraita, which a Boraita is an external Mishnah. It's like, it's like a, an additional source that really belongs in the Mishnah, but because the mission had already been edited and compiled, these 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 um, this boraita shows up 
actually outside of the section known as the um, as the mission. In today's parlance, we would simply say it's an extra footnote of sorts that really belongs in the body of the text, or we might even call it an excursus or something like that. But that's what a baraita is. Okay, so. Um, let's go back. Shall we assume that the Mishnah is not in accordance with Rabbi in the following Baraita? And here's, here is the Baraita. Quote, Rabbi says all sins mentioned in the Bible, whether one is penitent or not, are atoned by the Day of Atonement, except throwing off the yoke of God, expounding the Torah falsely, and abolition of circumcision and mocking a fellow man. He goes on to say, um, these sins are atoned for by the Day of Atonement if one is penitent, but not otherwise. Um, that's, that's the Baraita there. Now, uh, this is beginning to answer the question raised uh, the very first Sha'ala at the beginning of the Gemara, Death and Day of Atonement. They only atone when one is penitent. So first we quote a uh, rabbi who seems to indicate that all sins mentioned in the Bible, whether one is penitent or not, are atoned for by the Day of Atonement. So we're going to try and work out this this disagreement, this machlokit, or this what we all co- might call seemingly contradictory uh, points of view. Let's continue in the Gemara. It may be said even that the Mishnah is in accordance with Rabbi. Okay, Penitence is supplemented by the Day of Atonement or death, but the Day of Atonement does atone alone. So, that's our first statement from the Gemara. Penitence is supplemented by the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement and Penitence work together, but, this first Gemara states, the Day of Atonement does atone by itself. In other words, it atones without penitence. And that's what Rabbi stated in his Boraita, and that's what it seems to be that the Mishnah is going to agree with. Let's move down to the next paragraph of the Gemara. Quote, Penitence atones for slight breaches, if positive or negative, etc. And then they go to ask their first Sha'ila, first question. Why has it to be told positive? You know, it says penitence atones for slight breaches if positive or negative. Their statement now is, if negative, so much more the positive, right? And it's, it's still a question. You know, this argument that, you know, if it atones for positive breaches, well then obviously it atones for negative breaches. Now, those of you listening to my commentary who don't understand what I mean by positive negative, what we mean is that, according to the enumeration of the Rambam, Rabbi M- Moses ben Maimon, um, uh, affectionately known as the Rambam, Maimonides is what you might have heard his name mentioned as. The uh, listing of the 613 commandments are broken down into so many positives and so many negatives, so many thou shalts and so many thou shalt nots. That is to say, the Torah is seen through the lens of this dualistic view of the commandments are either um, God commanding us to do things or the commandments show up in the form of God prohibiting us from doing things um, forbidding us from doing things you, you understanding what I'm meaning so far so we're talking about this topic in the Gemara of penitence atones for slight breaches both on the positive and the negative in other words it's trying to cover the entire scope of the six hundred, the Tarayag the 613 mitzvot the 613 commandments so it's now this first question says well that's easy if it atones for positive, how much more the negative? Now, this logic that it atones for positive so much more the negative is known in rabbinic parlance as kol v'chomer, light from heavy. The argument states that if A is greater than B, I'm using an algebraic equation to explain kol v'chomer to you. If A is greater than B and B is greater than C, then by comparing A to C, how much more is A greater than C? Did you all follow me so far? If A is greater than B, and B is greater than C, then how much more is A greater than C? Noticing the relationship between the uh, proponents there. 
if a positive commandment is is atoned for and positive commandments are those commandments which the rabbis figure that we should focus on first. We should focus on the things that the Torah says thou shalt do before we concentrate on the things that the Torah says thou shalt not do. The thou shalts seem to outweigh, as it were, the thou shalt nots in the mind of the Chazal, the sages. And so that's why the question is asked, why does it have to be told, why is the mission even mentioning positive and negative? It's enough that we just say positive and we can assume that the negative is there. Let's answer. Said Rabbi Yehuda, the Mishnah meant to say, now Rabbi's gonna, Rabbi Judah is going to explain the Mishnah, it meant to say a positive commandment or a negative commandment inferred from a positive. So he elaborates, he, he takes that the phrase if positive or negative in our mission was just a gloss, a shortened form, a truncated form of the full statement, a positive commandment or a negative commandment inferred from positive. But a real negative commandment is not atoned for? So um, now the students are, are still puzzled, the students who are dialoguing with the Mishnah, which we are in a position of the students here in this Gemara. We're, we're dialoguing with the Gemara, which is really a dialogue with the Mishnah. A real negative commandment is not atoned for? In other words, um, if I violate a negative commandment, God says, thou shalt not uh, do this, thou shalt not do that, and I violate that mitzvah, are you trying to say that this commandment is not atoned for? There's a contradiction from the following Baraita. So now we're going to quote a Baraita, again, an external Mishnah, and we're going to give an example. What are called slight sins? What is the definition of this term, slight sin? A breach of a positive and a negative commandment, except the negative commandment. Uh, example is Exodus 20, verse 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. End quote. That's an example of, of, a, of a slight sin, which is a, a positive and a negative commandment, except the negative commandment that's listed here. Notice the language of this negative mitzvah. Exodus 20, verse 7. Thou shalt not... That's what we determine is a negative prohibition, a negative commandment, where we find God telling us, lo, something, thou shalt not do this. Uh, the Baraita seems to indicate that um, this particular example is not atoned for. Um, so our example, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord of the God in vain. And all things equal to something like this, since 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 this, which is a real negative commandment, is accepted... The question is, the other negative commandments are atoned for? So, we, we, that's why they're calling it a contradiction. Um, in other words, are, is it just cut and dry that all negative and positive commandments are atoned for? Or is it certain kinds of positive and only certain kinds of negative are atoned for? Or, you know, what's the general rule is what the students are trying to do. That's why they're dialoguing and asking these questions. So their last question was... You know, given this example, Exodus twenty four seven, are we trying to say that God says, "Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain"? Is God also going to acquit us of that guilt if we if we if we actually take the name of the Lord thy God in vain? And we're going to see later on down here in this Gemara why they chose this particular example, why this particular mitzvah is singled out. But I don't want to tell you just yet. Okay, let's keep reading in the Gemara. Come and hear another contradiction. It and then when they say contradiction, they're not saying a contradiction in the Torah. They're saying a contradiction in the reasoning behind the way we understand what the Torah is telling us. That is to say, 
it, it's what we might call today possibly a paradox. We're not fully understanding how the two pieces fit together. The Torah says one thing over in section A. It says another thing over in section B. We're not quite sure how they fit together. So we're going to call it a contradiction, but it's, we, we know really by, by fact that God's word does not and cannot contradict itself. Rather, if there's a contradiction, then it exists in our own mind. And the students are willing here in the Gemara to admit that they don't fully understand. So here's the contradiction. They're going to contrast uh, Exodus 20, verse 7, with now Exodus 34, verse 7. It is written, quote, and he will clear of sins, end quote. Now, we're seeing that thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Now, why did it say that? that um, um, why do we pull this example? Well, let's keep reading and we'll find out. The, the Gemara goes on to say, we might think from this sin, the sin where it said, uh, Exodus 20, verse 7, not to take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, we might think from this sin that the breach of the negative commandment, remember it's low, thou shalt not take the name. Um, in fact, let me just turn there so you can see uh, the full weight of this. This is actually found, Exodus 20, verse 7, if you remember, is right. it's right in the ten words, the ten commandments. You shall not take, um, let me find it here, Okay, uh, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, and I don't want to read the rest of it, but um, the, the Hebrew says, Lo tisa et shem Adonai Elohecha l'shav ah. And to, to, to render something shav is to render it meaningless or useless or, or empty, as it were, making the name of God empty. The point I wanted to bring up is that um, uh, verse 7 uh starts out with the word lo tisa lo means no or not or in the in the commandment uh in the, in the imperative form we would say you shall not lo tisa take at the shame the name of the lord uh, adonai lohecha the lord your god now the the gemara goes on to say we might think from this sin the breach of the negative commandment thou shalt not take the name of the lord etc he will also clear if we follow this logic that that penitence atones for slight breaches, whether positive or negative, and we, we're, we're stacking this upon what Rabbi already told us in his Baraita, that all sins mentioned in the Bible, whether one is penitent or not, are atoned for by the Day of Atonement, well then we have to see what the rest of the Pasuk says. What does it say? Therefore, it is further written in this particular Pasuk, by no means, end quote. By no means. Let me read the rest of the verse. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for Hashem will not absolve anyone who takes his name in vain. Yo yanake Adonai et asheter yisa et shmo l'shav. L'shavah, I'm sorry. This, this passage in Exodus 20, verse 7, read in its fullness, seems to indicate to the students here who are questioning the Mishnah that God will not forgive you if you commit this breach of this negative commandment. Lo, yinakke Adonai et asherer yisa et shmo l'shavah. Why wouldn't God re, 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 um, forgive you or, or, or allow you to repent for this particular sin? That's what they're asking, Okay. We might think from this in the breach of the negative commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord, etc. He will also clear. Therefore, it is written, it is further written, it being the Pasuk, the verse, by no means. 
Shall we assume that from the breaches of all negative commandments, he'll not clear? In other words, the students now take this Pasuk, verse 7 of Exodus 20, and say, here God says he's not going to forgive us if we, for, if we break this negative commandment, taking his name in vain, turning it into Shava. If we do that, are we to also assume that he's not going to um, forgive us of all negative commandments? Therefore, you know, if we were to come up with that uh, uh, logic, then the Torah also gives us the, the, the explanation of the passage. Therefore, it is written in this Gemara, Exodus 20, verse 7, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless. The Hebrew term is the same, that taketh his name in vain. Now, what we do is we infer from this, the Gemara says, that breaches of other negative commandments, he does atone for? That's a question. We infer from this that he does atone for other negative commandments, but for this one he doesn't? Is that what we're understanding? It's, is this a, like a, an isolated case where God won't give us atonement, but in the other ones he will? That's the question. How then, and now we're going to ask, remember Rabbi Judah said the Mishnah meant to say a positive commandment or a negative commandment inferred from a positive. The students now ask, how then does Yehuda say that the breaches of real negative commandments are not atoned for? How can he say that? Because if, if, if the real negative commandment is not atoned for, um, based on maybe this particular pasuk, then then how can Rabbi be right? In other words, that's why we said it's a, it's, it's apparent contradiction, or maybe it's just a simple machloket, a difference of agreement. Um, and that's exactly what the Kamara is going to go on to say. There is a machloket, a difference of opinion among the Tanaim. Now, who are the Tanaim? There are the sages of a particular period, and in this case, it was the period closest to the destruction of the pimp temple. The Tanaim, a Tana in the singular, and a Tanaim in the plural. There is a machloket, a difference of opinion, among the Tanaim, as we have learned in this following Braita. Now here, what does this Braita say? What does penitence atone for? What does this Braita trying to teach us? What does penitence atone for? It atones for breaches of positive and negative inferred from positive commandments. And for which does penitence only gain a suspension and the Day of Atonement atones? Now, it's, it's, it's formed in a question, by the way. For which does penitence only gain a suspension and the Day of Atonement atones? Now they want to know. They're trying to work out which sins does the Day of Atonement atone for. Is it penitence that simply comes along and and supplements these this atonement? Uh, or is it that the Day of Atonement covers all the breaches of positive and negative, whether there's penitence or not? Notice... The sins for which the penalties that, that the rabbis are referring to are karat, and karat, by the way, is being cut off from the community. The rabbis called this um, premature death at the hands of God. Or, uh, you know, you're put outside the walls of the city and you're left really just to fend for yourself. You have no protection from any court. You have no protection, as it were, from heaven. And the rabbis said, you know what, you're, it's, it's, you know, it's up to God to take care of you. You're outside of our jurisdiction. You're outside of the earthly um, limits of, of our protection. Therefore, you're cut off. You're out there, and whatever God wants to do with you, he does with you. You know, whether he prolongs your life for a little while or whether he just allows wild beasts to come and tear you apart, it's up to God. That's karat. So the answer to the question as to exactly which, which sins the Day of Atonement uh, covers and whether or not penitence plays an important part is this. The sins for which the penalties are karat, death by bet din, and real negative commandments. Those are the ones um, that try to answer this difference of opinion uh, between the, the, the Tanaim in this particular section. But just in case you, the students, are 
thoroughly confused, and I don't blame you if you are. Let's read the very last paragraph in this particular Gemara, and it's just going to state it quite plainly. The Master has said, because it is written in Exodus 34, verse 7, quote, He will clear of sins. How is it to be understood? How are we to understand now the final um, um, solution to our either our agreement, our, I'm sorry, our disagreement, or our contradictions, our supposed contradictions from the text? How are we to understand them? That is, I'm sorry, that is as we have learned in the following Baraita. The Baraita, this external mission, is going to answer the question for us. Quote, Rabbi Eliezer said, We cannot say it means, speaking of the, 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 the Pasuk Exodus um, uh, 34 verse 7. We cannot say that it means he clears his sins because it is written further by no means does he clear. But we also cannot say, Rabbi Eliezer would explain, he does not because it is written clear of sins. In other words, it seems to be that the Torah is hinting at both aspects. And therefore, Rabbi Eliezer simply comes along and explains it. And his last statement is very unambiguous. Here's Rabbi Eliezer, quote, we must therefore explain the verse, Exodus 20, verse 7, um, along with uh, the other passage that we looked at. Remember, we're kind of comparing Exodus 20, verse 7, along with Exodus 34, verse 7. Um, Rabbi Eliezer's last statement is this, We must therefore explain the verse, He clears of sins those who do penance, and he does not clear of sins those who are not penitent. End quote. Now, those of you listening to my commentary are probably saying, Gosh, Ariel, why didn't you just go straight to the very end and explain that? Why do we have to go through this this, this um, labored exercise of asking this question and that question and this machloket and that disagreement and this contradiction, etc., etc., ad, ad, ad nauseum? Well, keep in mind the way in which the Talmud and the, and the, you know, the mission and the Gemara are trying to teach us. It, it's not enough that we just tell the answer. We need to understand how we arrive at the answer, and we arrive at the answer by wrestling and, and, and struggling through the information that the Torah gives to us. It's much like, in my opinion, um, my, how you might solve an algebraic equation. Um, as you know, you have the algebraic equation stated, and then you have to work through the problem um, working both sides of the equal sign or both sides of the minus sign or both sides of the of the multiplication sign and you work the qu- equation down through you know step by step until you arrive at your final answer and when you turn in your answer to the teacher the teacher doesn't just want to see the final answer the teacher wants to see how you arrived at the answer through your work he wants to see the logical process that you took to go from step a all the way to step z to arrive at your final answer to find out what x minus z equals right that's kind of how the talmud wants you to understand the answers as well it would not be um, beneficial if the rabbi simply told the student what the answer to the question was uh, then the student really didn't learn how to arrive at the answer. He simply took the answer at face value. And what if the rabbi was wrong? What if the sage was wrong? Then the student needs to be able to understand how the answer is arrived at, not simply just given the answer. Do you guys understanding it a little bit better now, how the mission and the Gemara work together? So that's what we did. Um, that's why we went through the uh, uh, exercise that we did. By the way, that Talmudic quote was taken from my own CD-ROM version, um, Jacob Neusner's The Babylonian Talmud, Hendrickson Publishers, 2005 CD-ROM edition of this particular Talmud. Let's continue in in my commentary. I'm, I'm near the bottom of page 8. 
um, and we're just about ready to take a break. Uh, let's read about. Let's let's go for about ten more minutes, and then I'll take a break um, for part B. Okay. The concept that we just described, this concept of intentional and unintentional sins and of penitence and rebellion, it's touched upon also in the rabbinic... Um, I'm sorry, it's not touched upon the rabbinic... I'm, I'm sorry, I'm still stuck in rabbinic mode. It's actually touched upon in the Torah at Sefer Bimidbar, the book of Numbers. Let's now read the book of Numbers from the KJV, Numbers chapter 15, verse 26 through um, 1536, okay, 10 verses, quote... Um, this is KJV. And it shall be forgiven all the congregation of the children of Israel, and the stranger that sojourneth among them, seeing all the people were in ignorance. And if any soul sin through ignorance, then he shall bring a she-goat of the first year up for a sin offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for that soul that sinneth ignorantly. When he sinneth by ignorance before the Lord to make an atonement for him, it shall be forgiven him. Ye shall have one law for him that sinneth through ignorance, both for him that is born among the children of Israel, and for the stranger that sojourneth among them. But the soul that doeth aught presumptuously, whether he be born in the land or a stranger, that same, I'm sorry, the same reproacheth the Lord, and that soul shall be cut off from among his people. And then verse 31, because he hath despised the word of the Lord, and hath broken his commandment. That soul, that soul shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be upon him. I should say that's through verse 31. Let me change that. Uh, 26 through 31. There we go. Uh, the very, now notice in the passage how it mentioned unintentional sins and the atonement offered for that. But it talked about, in ver, starting in verse 30, the soul that doeth aught, presumptuously. The soul, the soul that sins with a high hand. Um, we should say the soul that sinneth um, presumptuously that says, you know what, God, I'm going to go ahead and sin and, and I'm going to see if you're going to punish me or not. That soul finds no forgiveness. In other words, we're seeing that penitence is in fact an agreement. I'm sorry, an ingredient of forgiveness. Now, the very same concept that the person must have repentance in his heart when he brings his sacrifice is taught in the Renewed Covenant. In other words, the New Testament, the Apostolic Scriptures, the Brit Chadashah, whatever you want to call it. Let's turn to the book of Hebrews. This time from the Revised Standard Version, Hebrews 10, 26-31, reads this way, quote, For if we sin deliberately, again, that term deliberately is like presumptuously, if we sin deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Basically, verse 26 of, of Hebrews 10 sums up uh, what the Numbers passage said as well. Let's keep reading in verse 27 of Hebrews 10. But a fearful prospect of judgment and a fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. A man who has violated the law of Moses dies without mercy at the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the man who has spurned the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the Spirit of grace? It's a good argument. For we know him who said, quote, vengeance is mine, I will repay, end quote. And again, quote, the Lord will judge his people, end quote. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, end quote. Now, um, from these passages, we see that atonement for sins, both intentional and unintentional, must be accompanied by a penitent heart. Again, something that the rabbis agree with, something that I agree with, and something that I hope the missionaries would agree with, 
based on the the passage that we just lifted out of Hebrews. Now, does Leviticus teach, Leviticus 16, our, our primary text for today, does it teach that the Yom Kippur atones for all these sins? That's my question. We see that it's in other passages, but does the Leviticus text teach us? Let's quote the text of Leviticus 16, verses 17 through 24, this time from the 1917 Jewish Publication Society version. I want to quote it this way because that's a, a, a very um, well-trusted version in Jewish circles. Some Christians may not be aware of the JPS version, but I'm going to quote it this time because I want my anti-missionary friends to see that um, I, I, um, I'm not trying to um, play favoritism by quoting from only Christian versions. Here we go. JPS version of Leviticus 16, starting in verse... Um, uh, let's start in verse... 16 there. Quote, And he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions, even all their sins, and so shall he do for the tent of meeting that dwelleth with them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall be no man in the tent of meeting when he goeth in to make atonement in the holy place. Of course, it's speaking about Aharon the high priest. Until he comes out and have made atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. And he shall go out unto the altar that is before Hashem and make atonement for it and shall take of the blood and of the bullock and of the blood of the goat and put it upon the horns of the altar round about. And he shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his finger seven times, and cleanse it, and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he may, and when, and when he hath made an end of atoning for the holy place, and the tent of meeting, and the altar, he shall present the live goat. Verse 21. And Aharon shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat, and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions, even all their sins. And he shall put them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of an appointed man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land which is cut off, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. And, uh, and Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting, and shall put off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, and he shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his flesh in water and in a holy place, and shall put on his other vestments, and come forth and offer his burnt offering, and the burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. End quote. Now, that's uh, verse 16 through 24. Look again at verse 16. I'm going to read it here and emphasize the part I want you to see. And he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions, even all their sins... And so shall he do for the tent of meeting that dwelleth with them in the midst of their uncleanness. Okay? I emphasize the word atonement, which is underlined in the um, written paper. And then the phrase, even all their sins, is also bolded and underlined. And look again at verse 16. Okay, I'm sorry, again at verse 21. I'll do the same thing. Quote, And Aaron shall lay up both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities the children of Israel, and all their transgressions, even all their sins, and he shall put upon them upon the head, and shall put and he shall put them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of an appointed man to the wilderness. The emphasis again is mine. Notice um, 
and that I've highlighted and underlined all the iniquities, all their transgressions, and all their sins. Now, it's not too difficult to understand um, the import of the passage quoted above. All means all, right? If I'm to understand the passage in its normative sense, it does mean all. The Yom Kippur sacrifice, if presented by the priest with a right heart on behalf of the people with right hearts, atoned for all of their fleshly sins. It's quite plain. We have no, um, we have no uh, um, confusion in the text. Again, let me cite the Rambam, who is Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, a.k.a. Maimonides. Let me cite him for, for ancient support, okay? I like the Rambam. Um, the Rambam. In his Mishnah Torah, chapter 1, which deals with the laws of repentance, let's read this. Quote, um, this was taken from an online source, at, and you can see the footnote number 9 there. Um, quote, this is the Rambam. The goat sent to Azazel on the Day of Atonement is for an atonement, is an atonement for all of Israel. The high priest confesses verbally over it for all Jews, as it is written, quote, and confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel, end quote. This goat atones for all transgressions of, um, of whatever severity of any of the Torah's commandments, whether they were committed deliberately or accidentally, whether the transgressor had confessed or not, provided the guilty parties had repented, for without repentance, the goat sent to Azazel repents only for the less severe transgressions. Okay, I, I can follow that so far. Rambam goes on to say, Severe transgressions are for those which a court of law can punish by death, or which carry a penalty of excision, and also false oaths and falsehood, even though they do not bear a penalty of excision. Transgressions of negative commandments or other transgressions, the transgression of which does not carry a penalty of excision, are considered less severe. End quote. Now, of course, any good Jew uh, can go on to read that in section 3, immediately following section 2, from which I um, quoted section 1, chapter 1, anyone can, uh, any good Jew who has um, a linear Maimonides here, can see that he clarifies his position on repentance by teaching, quote, in this day and age, we have only repentance, for we don't have the temple and altar. This repentance that we do have nowadays can atone for sins, end quote. And of course, this is where the Rambam and I part ways. <laughs> um, before I finish this section, let me just say this, uh, and I'm going to close up on, on, on part B here of our portion, to Ahremot. Uh, in chapter 16 of our portion in Leviticus, we find the divine instructions for the sacred day of assembly known as Yom Kippur. And Hashem has very explicit and important details that he expects Aharon, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, to carry out. To be sure, as we shall find out, they had a, they, they had a very significant and far-reaching impact not just on the physical offspring of Abraham, but as the fullness of God's timetable would demonstrate, they also had a significant and far-reaching impact on the rest of humanity as well. In other words, the verses that we've been studying teach us that God desires repentance. And in the mode of repentance, in the heart of repentance, an animal sacrifice brought to God's sanctuary with a, repentant, a penitent heart will, in fact, atone for sins of the flesh. And if the person has faith in Yeshua, then so much more will that atonement be effective for that person. 
we need to understand that the Torah is teaching us today that without the sacrificial system, we have no need of bringing animals because there's no temple. They work together. Without a temple, we have no um, defilement of God's holy sancta here on earth. There is no holy sancta here on earth. There's no tabernacle and there's no temple. Therefore, our sins of the flesh cannot defile such an edifice because there is no edifice. But if there was such a building in existence, then you bet that God would allow or would actually command that we bring animal sacrifices. But until the animal sacrifices return, we must remember that the sacrifice of Yeshua has provided the fullness of what the animals themselves were pointing to, namely cleansing of sins both in the flesh as well as cleansing of sins in the conscience. Um, the Spirit sanctifies us as He draws us close to Himself through this effectual work that the, that the Messiah has done. The animal sacrifices did not compete with Yeshua. They worked in concert with Him, in conjunction with Him. And if we were to reconstruct a tabernacle, if God were to allow a tabernacle to be rebuilt, of course, under the supervision of the leaders, I'm not just saying that we just have some rogue group out there put up a building and declare it a sacrifice, all right? It would have to be in accordance with what the Messiah has already dictated. Um, Perhaps maybe Ezekiel's temple. At any rate, if we had a temple, my understanding is that the sacrifices would be mandated and, and or allowed, of course, and that they would not compete with the sacrifice of Yeshua. But, of course, amidst the entire system with animals and with Yeshua's sacrifice, a penitent heart is the requirement, okay? The fact that Jesus died for everyone doesn't mean that everyone is automatically saved. Every Christian knows that. In order for Jesus' sacrifice to be effective, we must avail ourselves of the sacrifice, which of course is what? A penitent heart and genuine faith in the sacrifice itself. With that, let's close down part B to my portion, Parashat Achaimot. Stick around for part C. And since we're only on page 11 and there's 19 pages left, I'm sorry, there's 19 pages total, um, I'm assuming there's, there's definitely going to be a part C and possibly even a part D, okay? Stay tuned. <laughs> 